0: Before we begin, I'd like to say, on behalf of the whole team, thank you for listening to the Finding James Baldwin podcast. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, then please rate it and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Doing so helps us get this podcast into the ears of many others like yourself. This is Dr. Frank Leon Roberts. And my name is Aldo B. Martin. And this is Finding James Baldwin. Frank, I'm I'm afraid. I'm afraid we've come to the end. What a journey. I'm afraid we've come to the end of... uh, of, James, of finding James Baldwin, The Magpie Years. Yeah. And this has been a lot of fun. What a journey. I, it's been a lot of fun. I, I need the audience to understand that if it sounds fun to listen to,
1: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> you better believe it was fun to record. Absolutely. You know? You, you should have been here. Yeah. <laughs> okay? Actually, you are here right now. That's right. But it, it was it was a lot of fun to record. So thank you very much for for allowing me to join you on this journey. This is absolutely no this thank you.
2: Dope. I mean you think about four different locations. Four. Well, three. The cemetery is located where?
0: We see here we go. Hey, Let's see here we go. You just gonna. I'm tell jumping them ahead. You just jumping ahead. I'm sorry about Yo, that. Frank is a habitual <laughs> jumper ahead of her. <laughs>
1: uh. Oh, oh man, the cemetery.
2: Um, we, which we'll talk about, which we were referring to in a moment. But four different locations. Yeah. Um. We have followed James Baldwin's footsteps. We did literally sixteen. Uh, what? How many different? Sixteen different entries. Yes. Um, multiple perspectives, both yes. informed by public conversations, literary conversations, biographical, scholarly conversations. Um, the pages of the Schaumburg, the curators of the Schaumburg, um, and a global
0: virtual listening audience. And analysis by comparison in which we That's introduced right. his friends from the Mass why right.
2: Absolutely. And you know, I kind of end where I began. I talked about earlier in the season that why Baldwin is so important for me or what I love about Baldwin yeah. is his capacity to bring together um, an audience of people who would not necessarily always be otherwise in dialogue with each other. Well, I've said it many times that Baldwin's capacity to simultaneously um, be of interest to black radical folk and queer white folk and the young folk and the old folk and the um, college educated folk and the non-college educated folk and all these other um, seeming binaries is singular um, in the black radical tradition. King don't do that because the black radicals Ain't really messing with King like that, right? Or um, there are other people who have a certain kind of pushback against these figures. With Baldwin, so many people gather at his feet. And so I say all that to say, what a, what a gift, what a blessing yeah. it has been to use this as an opportunity to gather at the feet of a young Baldwin. Um, and so I love that. I love what we've done. I also think, you know, we talked about this at the, um, at the public event at Amherst College when we were there. Um, that one of the things that I think podcasting and this podcast has done or that I hope it has done is invite us to expand and rethink our understanding of the form and function of literary criticism.
0: Yeah, man. That
2: literary, literary criticism is not just something that can happen on the pages of fancy literary journey journals, even though shout out to that work. I'm interested in that work. Yeah, man. I'm a part of that tradition. However, there's something about this podcast form that has allowed us to not only speak about this young writer who's in rehearsal, yeah, but also to rehearse our own ideas and interpretations. Yeah. And I think that that's powerful. And so lastly, this podcast has allowed us, I think, to really offer the world this sort of not so much forgotten but certainly underexplored moment in Baldwin's literary repertoire. Untapped potential. Yeah, and not just analyze the work, but actually give it back. And the most exciting thing about this for me has been the extent to which it's allowed us to become sort of artistic collaborators with Baldwin. Yeah. In the sense that the choices that we have made, really you have made, Brother Aldo, in the uh, the narrator, who is narrating these words, the musical choices, the, ch- the instrument, the soundtrack, where we're not just analyzing Baldwin, but we've been able to represent his words anew to another generation. I say all that to say is that if this podcast has done nothing more, what I hope is that it follows this Baldwinian tradition of bringing people together. If you're listening out there and you've never read an academic book in your life, but you 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 feel this podcast, it was for you. If you are a high school student who read Sonny's Blues and you wanted to know more about Baldwin, it was for this podcast is for you. If you are an academic who considers himself a full Baldwinian scholar and you wanted to know about this early moment in his life, it was for you. If you are um, a novice Baldwin reader who just uh, just likes podcasts, it was for you. and so all that is to say. I hope that this podcast has provided an opportunity for all these different constituencies who might, not all, who might not otherwise be in conversation with each other to come gather at the feet of a writer who many of us are familiar with in this more unfamiliar moment in his literary
0: legacy. Gathering at the feet. And I think this podcast has kind of allowed us to set up a gathering table.
2: Mm-hmm. A welcome table,
0: as welcome Baldwin table. would call it. Welcome table as Baldwin would call it You know one of the questions That we asked each other And this is probably A the, the very simple question Right because there's so many ways you can ask Questions with so many words but this was I think this was a, a really apt question Why Baldwin Yeah And my thought on that was The idea of creating a podcast That's evergreen And by evergreen I mean Something that's always relevant, right? It's it, it doesn't go out of season, right? And not, isn't bound by time. Mm-hmm. Creating a podcast like that really interests me, right? But then you have Baldwin, who himself I consider to be evergreen,
1: mm-hmm.
0: who's always relevant, right? I, I believe in in the class earlier today, you said not only is Baldwin timeless, timeless but he's also timely. That's right. So what he wrote in 1963 was applicable to the summer of 2020. That's right. And vice versa. Right, right. Right? So there's there's that element to it. And what I also love about Baldwin, and what I learned, and I learned this from conversing with yourself, is Baldwin's ability, not just ability, but Baldwin's willingness and ability to connect with a younger generation. Yes. You mentioned to me before when he wrote uh, The Fire Next Time, a letter to his nephew. He could have written that to anybody. Mm-hmm. He could have written that to his brother. He could have written that to his 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 mother, his sisters, and his lover, anyone. Any one of his peers. Mm-hmm. But he wrote it to his nephew. Not just because the nephew was family, but because the nephew represented the younger generation at that time, mm-hmm. right? And then Baldwin at the same time appeals to a younger generation of yeah. people.
1: Yeah.
0: Which is something that is just fascinating and no fascinating is not the right word there's something admirable about that yeah that's the word i want to use because part of what makes something timeless is young people Mm -hmm. if young people do not gravitate or take hold of what it is that you're doing what you're doing will cease to exist yeah at some point right but young people gravitate to baldwin as evidenced by the people in your class yeah As evidenced by people that I've spoken with, a young man that I spoke with a few weeks ago who I work with who told me he's taken a college course. Yeah. He's taken four college courses this year, and one of them is a a literature course, and he said he read Sonny's Blues for the first time. Yeah. And the way he was telling me what he felt about it, it it just reminded me of what I read 20 years ago, Mm -hmm. right? How I felt 20 years ago, but this was his moment. And so this timelessness of Baldwin is... Amazing, impeccable, and I think it makes for really good podcast content, and not just podcast content because it's easier easy for us to talk about. Yeah, was any of this us pulling teeth to talk about? Hell no. No, that's right. This was easy. If anything, we talk. We didn't talk enough. Yeah. If anything. Yeah. But for you, man, why Baldwin? Oh my gosh. Well,
2: it was what I said earlier, just a moment ago. For me, why Baldwin is number one. His capacity. To the the, the the uniquely coalitional nature of his readership as an organizer, as someone with a background in political organizing, I think Baldwin is the perfect figure to do coalitional work around because his audience is itself so coalitional. Yeah, I also think that in terms of why Baldwin resonates, Baldwin resonates because truth always resonates. Mm. Truth is perhaps the only timeless thing that we have. Doesn't mean that the truth doesn't change, but there's something about truth itself. Um, that is timeless and Baldwin embodies that truth or Baldwin's yeah. words, which is why he resonates and speaks to us today. Also, the capacity of the work, whether or not we're talking about 16 year old Baldwin or 60 year old Baldwin, to lend itself for adaptation and recreation is a part of a black radical tradition that we belong to of the remix of the remaking. And what we've done in this podcast, I think, is remix and remake Baldwin. Yeah. That this early writing we didn't just, um, um, you know, post the words on a website and say go read it.
0: Yeah, but nah, by a la- nah,
2: by nah. A list, let allowing inviting rather.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, uh, Sister Elena and, and Tina to um, to give us those readings, right, and to th- those musical choices where we were. Collaborating with Baldwin and, and and creating a literary mood was a way of recreating Baldwin's work, which is part of why he continues to be relevant, because people continue to find ways to remix, remake, readapt his words. And so that's also why Baldwin, you know, and also because we get to see in Baldwin the journey of a person who, much like us, for those of us who can admit it, um, is not a clear ascending staircase upward, but a jagged edge. We oh, saw Baldwin.
0: Hey,
1: this.
2: I this. mean, well, it's real. We see. There's a... No,
0: there's no, there's no grease left. Frank. <laughs> like, please stop.
2: <laughs> no, but it's true. Right. Baldwin's capacity to show us not just the mountains, but the valleys. Mm. His capacity is to show us not just the rainbows, but the storms is part of. And we see that in this, we, in this early body of work that is broad, uh, and it's, and it's showing us these these different um, ways of being that it reminds of reminds us of what it means to be human, full of contradiction, yeah um, full of black and white, full of gay and straight, full of um, um, quiet and loud, full of all these binaries. We see them in Baldwin's life and we see them in his work. And that kind of truth will always resonate with anyone who is willing to admit to, the miraculous contradiction of being alive.
0: Today we had the event at your yeah. school. Yeah. Right. Thank you, Amherst College, for allowing me to, to inviting me yeah, uh, y- y'all could have just had Frank. Frank is enough. No, we could. But thank you guys for for allowing me to come and 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 meet with you guys and converse with you guys about this project, which to me is 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 for me personally, it's a great achievement because it's something that we created and it's out there and it's our words and hopefully it's as timeless as uh, as some of the writings that you've heard. I hope, I really hope, and I hope that inspires uh, people to to really appreciate literature. One of the, one of the standouts to me from this uh, from this day was being in your class in the class that you're teaching about Baldwin yeah and sitting with the students was was wonderful and I wrote down three things that some of the students said mm-hmm. and, and I thought it was just I thought it was just brilliant one young lady her name is Segan yeah she said that Baldwin was historically informed mm-hmm. at 15 years old mm-hmm. historically informed what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Think about myself at 15 years old. Yeah. I was barely informed. Yeah. Let alone historically informed. <laughs> right? Let alone historical. Let alone historical, right? And then a young guy, a young man named Shane, he says, he does not let faith dictate his writing, but his writing is nothing without faith. Yeah. In the words of Shane. Yeah. Shout out to you, Shane. Yeah. I thought that was profound. And I thought that kind of captured the spirit of the magpie.
2: Oh, absolutely.
0: You know, it really did. And then the young lady, Stormy, she said in what, regarding one of the poems that sonnet is an exit from religion. Here I was reading it from a totally different lens. And here comes this young lady presenting some new information. And those are the types of con- conversations that I had in your class. And I would love to hear more of that. Yeah. I would love to hear what it is that other people think.
2: Well, I mean, I think uh, one thing to remember... Is that when we are reading, reciting, talking about, thinking with these writings, when we situate them in the historic context in which they were produced, we are listening to the mind of a child. And perhaps somebody out there can use this podcast as a reminder of the power of listening to children, Mm. to young people, listening to young people that we actually... We haven't we weren't just listening to Baldwin at 61, um, you know, um, at Cambridge Hall for the Buckley debate. No. We were listening to a child. And so something about that, about the way this podcast, I hope, invites us to remember the brilliance that children contain or that young people contain, that they are more than folks who just need to be talked about but or talked to. But also people from which we can learn. It's one of the reasons why I'm a professor. It's a, it's one of the reasons I have chosen this profession as a vocation, not simply an occupation, because it allow. It's I'm always reminded at the capacity of young people to think in radical ways about what it means to be alive. And so these writings for the magpie. Part of the reason why they shine and glow for us is because they present us with a vision of the world from a child's perspective, which is, I think sometimes something what us older folk,
1: mm-hmm.
2: we've battled so much and talked about aging so much in this podcast. Wow. We he sometimes just, wrestle with, he, he
0: just referred to himself as older. I know. Old. Listen,
2: I tell you, I'm gonna tell you one more time. I'm younger than Beyonce, bro. So as long as that remains true, I ain't never going to be old because Beyonce ain't never going to be old. Be clear. But, I will say, to wrap my piece up, I am forever grateful. Why am I talking in this twang? I don't know. I'm forever grateful for the magpie, for reminding me of the capacity to think about the value that young people, which is what Baldwin was when he was writing this work, have to offer the world. So, Brother Aldo, you reminded me um, when I was writing um, my doctoral dissertation, Yeah, um, which is essentially the, became the basis for what is this going to be this book project or is this book project on James Baldwin. The, the dissertation was called James Baldwin on the Minor Frequencies. And I spent a lot of time in that dissertation in the Baldwin papers at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. Um, so much time that I often... Now forget what is and is not in it, and I had always, um, I kind of remembered incorrectly there being copies of the magpie hmm. at the Schomburg, you know. And one of the things you've helped to remind me about what just feels so good about returning to these writings and having this kind of literary rediscovery of this complete body of work by Baldwin is that these papers, these 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 journals actually don't exist um, at the Schomburg. Tell us about your experience in the Baldwin paper. So I will say quickly, for those listening, the James Baldwin papers um, are housed by the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, which is a part of the New York Public Library, located on 135th Street and Lenox Avenue, directly across the street from Harlem Hospital, where James Baldwin was born. And It is a rite of passage for all Baldwin scholars and as well as Baldwin lovers to go to the Baldwin papers and see what exists in that treasure trove. So we want to invite all of our listeners to take that experience. It is open to the public. Tell us about searching for the magpie in the Baldwin papers and what that experience was like for you.
0: So first of all, to get in there. I, I, you 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 probably can you probably have an easier time <laughs> getting into the VIP line at a club, okay, than yeah. going to see the ball and papers because yeah. it is appointment only. Yeah, and it is one person at a time. Yeah, and when I made my appointment, it was a month in advance mm. because there was nothing available next week. Right. So again, you have an easier time uh. going to the club, getting in VIP. Do people still do that, or is that not yeah, a thing? Absolutely. They do. Okay, my bad. I do not want to date myself, <laughs> but anyway. Hulk. My- <laughs> so I get there, and and there's 77 boxes of James Baldwin material that was that the library has. Right, 77 boxes, stuff that are manuscripts, yeah, uh, handwritten notes, typewritten notes, all types of stuff that is just a treasure trove for those that are James Baldwin fanatics. Right, I was looking at the box that had the earliest writings. And the earliest writings was like 1938. And I'm looking and I'm looking and I'm looking and I saw uh, uh, a copy of the Douglas Pilot, which Mm. was the literary magazine for his his junior high school. Junior high school. Where he was a student of County Cullen. He was a student of County Cullen. And Herman Porter, Mm. a.k.a. Bill Porter. Right. But that's another
2: discussion. Do we know if Billy Porter knows that there was a Billy Porter in Baldwin's history. He does now. Duh, yeah, he certainly does it.
0: Billy, if you're listening, which you should be, contact us. Yeah, contact us. We'll put you on to who the other the Billy Porter the first. Billy Porter the first. Who was for our for our listeners, who was who was William Porter aka Bill Porter? Well, uh Herman Porter. Herman Porter, excuse yeah. me. Yeah. And he was he was one of uh James Baldwin's mentors at uh at Frederick Douglass Academy. Right. Was it Frederick Douglass Middle School, Junior High School? I think it was Frederick Douglass Junior High School. Frederick Douglass Junior High School. Pardon me. So you see this, this, this. They have the whole copy of 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 that edition of the Douglas Pilot. So as I'm looking, there was no magpie. I'm looking in the other boxes. There's no magpie because the boxes are uh, uh, arranged chronologically by year. Yeah. From the earliest to the latest. Yeah. And then I I spoke with a librarian. I said, I said, ma'am, pray tell. <laughs> Where? By, by see what I did there? Billy Porter, Pray Billy Tell. Billy Porter. I, I got it. If I, you if you don't know, you do not. I didn't even know. know if
2: you knew you were doing it.
0: Psh, the pray tell it. reference. I'm I'm well aware. Hey, okay? I'm well hey. aware.
2: Somebody been watching Pose. Hey,
0: listen, great show. Oh yeah. Listen, my wife and I watched listen, she put me on to that. Yeah. I was Riveting Some television. finest work. Yeah. Riveting television. Yeah. But anyhow, we digress. I said, um, "Where's the uh, the magpie?" She said, "Oh, it's not here." And so she knew him. So she knew what it was, she and it she was. knew
2: that it was an absence she goes, in the archives. It's
0: not here. Fascinating. She goes. However, the uh, the library does have a copy of the nineteen forty two magpie the star spangled banner edition mm, that's the issue that scholars are very familiar with <clears throat> they have it somewhere else mm. in the library that's the only one they had that one issue that one issue and how many
2: issues have we discussed and had in our presence here on finding james bold on the podcast this Four. is just
0: me bragging a little bit 4 i've been around the world like lisa stansfield yeah and, and I, I i i i can't find the magpie I don't know what. no, nah, I'm gonna stop. No, for real. So so even, even the Schomburg, the, the the which is across the street from the birthplace of James Baldwin, which is essentially his college. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Essentially his university training. They they don't have that. And now we come to the title of the podcast, Mm. which is Finding James Baldwin. This podcast has been a journey, and you've been a guide for me in this journey.
2: And likewise.
0: You've pointed me in the direction of certain artifacts to find, certain artifacts to read.
2: See where you're going, and I like it.
0: Several months ago before releasing this podcast, I read the James Baldwin biography by David Leeming, and I bought it from a particular bookstore that I don't usually go to. It's located about 30 miles north from my home in a town in Westchester County. So I drove up there, got the book, and I spent about two weeks reading the book. As I got closer to finishing the book, I thought, you know what? Let me go back to the place where I bought the book and finished the book there. I thought it would be uh, poetic justice to, 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 to finish where I began. So as I'm about to conclude the book, I drove up north 30 miles away into Westchester County. And I got to the bookstore and I settled in the cafe to finish the book. I get to the final chapter of the book and it depicts... Baldwin's final days he passed away at home under hospice care as he was looked after by a a community of loved ones and in his last days he read pieces of literature aloud with his loved ones when he had the energy and one of the pieces of literature that he read in his final days was Peace on Earth the first story That he wrote for the magpie. The act of reading the magpie aloud as he was dying tells me that the magpie wasn't just something that he did as a teenager, it meant something to him. The magpie was living and active for him. Shortly thereafter, he passed away in his home in the south of France in 1987. Shortly thereafter, his body was flown to New York City, where a funeral service was held for him in Harlem, his birthplace. At the completion of the funeral service, the funeral procession drove north, past Harlem, through the Bronx, past Clinton High School, and continued north into Westchester County. He was buried at Ferncliff Cemetery in Hartsdale, New York. Now, as I read the details that I just described to you, it dawned on me that the bookstore where I sat reading this information was about 10 minutes away from the Ferncliff Cemetery, James Baldwin's final resting place. I was astonished. I was shocked. I couldn't believe this What I thought... I didn't know how to describe it. Fortuitous. Good fortune. Miraculous. I don't know. But... I finished the book. I closed the book. And I left the bookstore. I got in my car... And drove to the cemetery wondering... If I was actually going to see... James Baldwin's final resting place. I get to the cemetery... I find the main office, and I inquire about James Baldwin's whereabouts. And the woman behind the counter said, James Baldwin? He's famous, right? (laughs) I said, yeah, a little bit. She gave me a directory and a map, and off I went. Now, Ferncliff Cemetery, or as it's formerly known, the Ferncliff Cemetery Association is a sprawling 240-acre memorial park. It doesn't look like nor have the feeling of a cemetery. Instead of erect monuments, the tombstones lay flat and plumb with the earth. Mature trees stand guard as if as if to protect and bear witness to the park's interred residents. What's also special about the cemetery, aside from it being pristine and picturesque, is that it's the final resting spot for people such as Malcolm X, Betty Shabazz, Ossie Davis, Ruby Davis, Paul Robeson, Ed Sullivan, Joan Crawford, Thelonious Monk, and Aaliyah just to name a few as I got to the crest of the cemetery I began looking on the ground for the plot right I got had the director in my hand I'm looking for row 12 and then I found row 12 and then I began looking at each tombstone on the ground looking for James Baldwin the numbers were listed chronologically 1210 1209, 1208, 1207, and then there, right there at the end of the row, underneath a tree, there he was, James A. Baldwin. Right next to his mother, Burtis Baldwin. I stood there in disbelief, in awe, in gratitude, I had no words, none. I knelt down, and I touched the tombstone. And the only words that I could muster were, I've been looking for you for a long time.